Hey, Will. Hey, John. Hey, Abby. What's up? Uh, not much, except, well, you know, it's our 200th episode of Cinemaholics. Yep. Sure. And <laughs> you know what that means. Uh, nope. John, where's this going? Well, I know we have a lot of movies to talk about this week, but I have a crazy idea. What if, what if we did a flashback? Uh, what? A flashback. To all the stuff we were doing years before Cinemaholics even started. Let's say in the 90s. We could do a 90s episode where we're reviewing a 90s movie. And if anybody sees us, we just knock out the security cameras. But John, that doesn't make any sense. Cinemaholics started in 2017. Yeah, it undermines the narrative of the podcast if we flash back to stuff we were doing before it started. <laughs> Why are you guys poking holes in this? John, calm down. We're just trying to tell you that it would raise more questions and frustrate the listeners who honestly had to deal with enough silliness from us this whole year. Yeah, John, can't we just end 2020 with a simple, no-nonsense episode of Cinemaholics with the latest reviews of the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online? Fine. John? What? You're not going to be pouting this whole episode, are you? No. Okay, well, I suppose we should get started. John, today would be nice. Welcome once again, Cinemaholics. I'm the host, I guess, who doesn't get to make any decisions. And, uh, yeah, from a place you don't care about, whatever. I'm John. John. What? You're doing that thing again. <sighs> what thing? That thing where you get all fussy over nothing. Talk to the hand. John! What? Now you're just using 90s references. As if. <sighs> Come on, Abby. Let's go record Cinemaholics on our own. Clearly John is interested in furthering this course of online cinema. Indeed, Will. Gag me with a spoon. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. From Kansas City, I am Abby Olchesi, film editor for The Pitch, with bylines at Slash Film, Crooked Marquee, RogerEbert.com, and Your Hearts. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. Hello. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on... Guys, wait. Guys, hold on. It's me. What brought your sorry butt back here? Guys, I'm sorry. I was being a real jerk. I I guess I let my vision for Cinemaholics being a 90s throwback episode get in the way of us putting on a good show. John. Yeah? From the San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> yeah? He is John Negroni. And uh, where can they find the full archive, Abby? Well, John, they can find more episodes of Cinemaholics at Cinemaholics.com. Cinemaholics what? Cinemaholics.com, where they can also find written reviews. John, should we tell them what our email is? Yes, please. Okay, buddy. Cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. You guys are the best. Group hug. Uh, nah.
Anyway, our Patreon is patreon.com slash cinemaholics, and you can also support us by buying our sick-ass merch on cinemaholics.com. Hoodies, shirts, shot glasses, you name it. Wow, this was fun. We should do this more often where <laughs> it was really you good. guys do the whole thing, and I just don't. This is exciting. This is our 200th episode. I yeah. feel very proud yeah. of us. This is fun. Some of you might be listening and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Abby's been around since September. Uh, fake news. Abby had, first was on the show in 2018. That was years ago. So, Abby, you're you're one of us. That's true. I'm a, I'm a seasoned one veteran. Of us. Mm-hmm. One of us. One of us. The bad news is uh, Maverick Hines rejected the invisible text messages I sent him, inviting mm-hmm. him back. Um, one of these days, I do want to get Maverick back on for real. Uh, that would be super fun. Uh, the problem is it would have to be for a movie he would watch. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I'm I'm very happy to have Maverick back on, but I feel like if we tease that, the listeners will never give us or never yeah. stop giving us gruff until he comes back on. So That's don't, true. don't make a promise you can't keep. But if Maverick is listening and wants to come back, he's more than welcome to. Yeah, he just has to send me an invisible text message. He could, he could just use the power that uh, his father used to hide the mascara. Oh, jeez. So on that note, we are reviewing a bunch of huge movies this week we're reviewing fewer movies than we usually do just because they're big ones i think they're going to take a lot of conversation so we definitely wanted to keep things pretty focused especially since it is episode 200 and next week we are going to be talking about some more films and enough topics we'll tell you about a lot of things that are out so that you at least are aware of the new releases and we're not leaving you high and dry but our first off topic is as always extra milestone our bonus podcast where Sam Nolan covers film anniversaries for all the classic films of yesteryear. This past week was a crazy good triple feature. Uh, So awesome. Uh, Sam invited on his Anyway That's All I Got former podcast co-host. So longtime listeners of Cinemaholics will remember that was a bonus pod we did a while back, um, also in 2018. And so that was Sam Nolan along with Anthony Battaglia, Jason Reed, and Guy Simons. And they talked about Barry Lyndon, which came out in 1975, Spartacus, which is 1960, and Ren, a Kurosawa's film from 1985. So yeah, uh, you know, from Stanley Kubrick to one of the greatest act epic films of all time to one of the final masterpieces from Kurosawa. It is a stacked episode. You definitely want to check it out. And uh it's it's a good it's a good milestone to almost end the year on, but we have another episode coming out later this week that Will and I are going to be on to finish out 2020. It's going to be just as epic. Yeah. I hope should we get? Are we allowed to talk about that? Yeah, I think um, we can say right. We're talking about I, I guess uh, so. <laughs> Brazil and what, what's the other film again? It's Edward Scissorhands. That'll be Edward the third Tim Burton film I've talked about an extra mouse. So I I can't say the same for you. I think it's only been two for you, but it, it's very exciting for me nonetheless. <laughs> wow, so that's like a like a double feature of non Christmas Christmas movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We talked about Brazil in our holiday special, which you can check out on the feed. Uh, Brazil was one of my alternative Christmas movies. And I remember at the very end of it, Julie and I were like, ah, we forgot about Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> so there you go. Good. Yeah. We get it. We get our second chance. All right. Um, yeah. So we still don't have any listener voicemails. We're taking a little bit, a little bit of a break from that. I think we're going to kick that off again once we do our top films of 2020. 
we're going to do a big thing for that. So uh, don't worry, listeners, you are going to get tons of involvement. We hope lots of voicemails are going to be hopefully coming in for your favorite films of 2020. You can get ahead of the game, though, and send us a voicemail either through our Gmail or through the Swell app, which you can find in the show notes. Uh, let us know what is your number one film of 2020 and why. Uh, please send that to us as soon as you can so we can include it in our episode. It's in two weeks, so we hope to include it for sure. Our New Year's episode is going to cover... A few other films, though, because there are still some notable releases coming out. So we're going to do a brief movie catch-up on some things that are out besides our main reviews. One of the big ones is Eugene Ash's second film, Sylvie's Love, which stars Tessa Thompson. And um, I, I never pronounce his name right. It's like Namda Muga or something like that. I apologize. A former NFL player who is uh, really fantastic in this movie. Will, Abby, have you heard anything about Sylvie's Love? I know I've raved about it. Um, since I saw it at Sundance, but uh, I, I don't know if the reviews are good yet. Yeah, I've I've been seeing some reviews come in uh, since its release this week, and they've all been they've all been pretty good. I'm I'm kind of excited. I hadn't known much about the movie uh, up to this point, but given all the positive buzz, I'm I'm looking forward to checking it out. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I've heard positive to very positive responses so far, and I'm a little sad to hear that it's not really, it's getting kind of lost in the shuffle with all these different movies coming out on Christmas, so I am right. excited to check that one out pretty soon, but yeah, I figured since we're talking about these three films this week, I'll hold off till next week to check it out. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to hopefully have time to re-watch it, although I'm trying to cram a lot of films for the end of the year, a lot of films I haven't seen yet, but yeah, Sylvie's Love, you can watch it right now on Amazon Prime Video, I definitely recommend it. Uh, there's another film we might be talking about next week called The Midnight Sky, which just dropped on Netflix. All I know about that one is that it stars like George Clooney and uh, Felicity Jones, David Yellow. Uh, I don't know anything about the story. And I will, you're going to talk more about this one next week. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you two are seeing it or not, but yeah, I got a chance to check that out over the Christmas uh, weekend. And George Clooney directed it as well. It's one that he, I guess, was pitched to star in, but he felt compelled to make it as well. And uh, yeah, I'll talk about that more next week. Yeah, should be good. Always interesting when Clooney directs uh, a film, for sure. All right, and then other than that, uh, I know there is a We Can Be Heroes, which I believe is also a Netflix thing. That's like the sequel to Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Robert yeah. Rodriguez is directing. And the yeah. second film that came out on Christmas 2020 to a popular streaming service that's a superhero movie that also stars Pedro Pascual. Yeah, it's kind of crazy considering that and Mandalorian, it's like all come out around the same time. Like Pascal's having a month for sure. He really is. I actually, I hadn't known that he was in We Can Be Heroes until I saw it was like a screen cap from a review and yeah. all of a sudden I was much more interested in seeing it. So yeah, <laughs> I may I may actually check it out. I was gonna say, he is Shark Boy in it, right? I'd have to assume because Taylor Lautner didn't come I I, I'm joking. Yeah, no, I have no <laughs> idea, but I just like I to thought think it was the same actors. Yeah, Taylor I, Lautner. Uh, Taylor Lautner, that was a big point of contention on Twitter. He is not back for the film. But I believe mm. Sharkboy and Lava Girl are only in it for like basically like a glorified cameo. So uh, keep that in mind if you're watching it, if you haven't already. Oh, then I'm not watching it. That's, that's the only reason I would watch it, see what my, my pals have been up to. Um, but yeah, there's also the new Paul Greengrass film, which just crazy that it came out like amid all of these other films you'd think that it would have gotten a little bit more time to itself but it has been a pretty crazy month like a very stacked month but there's this new movie called news of the world with tom hanks and yeah it's like 
Tom Hanks always has like an Oscar Beatty movie around this time of the year. And I think we'll probably have time to talk about that next week. I don't know if uh, how to watch it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know it's Netflix overseas and then it's in theaters, I believe, in the U.S. Yeah. And then it'll be on VOD, I think, around January 15th ish from what I can gather. So, yeah, I I feel like Paul Greengrass's non-born movies tend to get really overlooked. Like he gets overlooked a lot as a director, which is a bummer because he's a really solid action director. So I'm I'm looking forward to checking this out and seeing how it stacks up. Yeah. And it's uh, his uh, return to uh, work with the Captain Phillips team. So it's those two together again. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Yeah. So yeah, uh, like we're saying, just so many things out. There's also One Night in Miami, which uh, is Kent Powers. We're going to be talking about Kent Powers later in the show, uh, pretty soon actually, when we're talking about Soul, because he co-directed and co-wrote that Pixar film. He also has One Night in Miami, which is one of the buzziest award seasons uh, films that's out right now. It's in limited theatrical release, and I really want to see One Night in Miami, but it's it's a tough one to track down. I don't think I'm going to be able to get my eyes on it before the new year but hopefully will or abby i think abby did you say you already saw it i can't keep track no i unfortunately i think i'm in the same boat as you john Um, i came within a hair's breadth of actually getting to watch it and then turned out that it didn't work out schedule wise so yeah same uh yeah yeah so i i feel like i missed the boat on that one but hopefully i'll get another chance uh soon because i would really like to see it i've been hearing good things yeah same for Uh, you will yeah no i saw it at tiff or virtual tiff this year so i have seen it but, um, oh, for some yeah. reason, I thought you missed that one. Those nope. ones you wanted to see. Okay. It was one of the ones I wanted to see, but thankfully I did get a chance to check it out. Great, great. Yeah, so hopefully you can catch us up on it next week, and then Abby and I can catch up on it sometime in January, I suppose, <laughs> whenever we can. Um, I did want to mention, I, I forgot to mention last week that I finally saw Tenet <laughs> on uh, Video On Demand. And yeah, I, I listened back a little bit, Will, to your your hosted episode you did with Corey and Charlie yeah, and it, it's a great conversation. I, I would definitely point the listeners back to it. It came well, out in you. September. The three of you talked about Christopher Nolan's newest movie and you had a very, I think balanced conversation about it. You pointed out a lot of the flaws that I had at it. Uh, some of the things that like the spectacle of it that I think is not to be ignored, but I got to say Tenet just did not work for me. I found myself totally totally underwhelmed and unimpressed with just the entire thing as somebody who adores inception it's one of my all-time favorite movies i just i just looked at this and i had the same feeling i did with interstellar where i just do not i do not think nolan really speaks to me as a director the way he used to i don't know what it, if it's me or him or what it's just you know uh, I, I did really like dunkirk that, that's about it for like the recent nolan stuff I know I I haven't watched Tenet yet either, uh, but I I am looking forward to it. I've got um, I've got access to it all set up and ready to go. I'll probably check it out sometime this week. But I'm I know my expectations are a little bit low, just kind of based on what I've heard. And also, I think I'm emotionally sort of in the same boat uh, with regards to Nolan as you are, John. There was a time when I was a super fan, and at this point, I I'm starting to notice some of the same tricks piling up, and they're kind of having diminishing returns. So we'll see we'll see how Tenet stacks up. Yeah, diminishing returns is exactly how I would put it. So I hope you enjoyed a lot more than I did. I know some people are really loving it, you know, here and there. So anything's possible. Uh, 
Yeah, there's also Death to 2020, the new Netflix comedy special. Uh, I don't really know much about that, except uh, isn't it the dude from Stranger Things is in it or something? I, um, I believe there's a bunch of people in it. I think it's a guy or one of the guys who did Black Mirror is involved with it. But that's about oh, the full okay. extent of what I know about other than it's on Netflix. And then there's also uh, Bridgerton, which, Abby, you've been binging on Netflix, I believe, and it's on my list. I Once I am done cramming movies, I'm going to be getting into Bridgerton for sure. I have, yeah, uh, just because I've had, I've had some extra free time um, in the last few days, just, you know, time off from work. So I, I got to actually catch up with stuff I was excited to see TV-wise. And yeah, Bridgerton is... Uh, it's some fun romantic trash, man. I'm enjoying the heck out of it. It's got like all the Regency period costumes and all of the sexy, fun romance stuff that you'd experience uh, that you'd expect from like a Shonda Rhimes show since she executive produced it. So yeah, it's 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 pretty frothy and it's it's good for this time of year when that's exactly what you want. Yes, yes. I everything I've seen about this show has told me it's for me. Um, literally people have told me that it's something I would like. So I, I have high expectations, although I'm managing them, of course. Um, that was fun. I, I, I kind of like this, this like, uh, energy we did for like the movie catch up. We covered a lot of stuff and hopefully, um, all the listeners will be informed on everything that is uh, out there right now, or a lot of things at least that they can check out, but let's begin some more in-depth conversations starting with our featured review of the week, Pixar's Soul. What the... What is this place? What's your name, honey? Uh, I'm Joe. I teach middle school band. How'd it go for it? Today started out as the best day of my life. Back here tonight, first show's at seven. Yes! Woohoo! You know what that's gonna say? Joe Gardner! <laughs> I did it! I got the gig! Must have been sudden for you. No, it's the great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks, and interests before they go to Earth. Meet 22. I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this. I don't want to. Uh. <laughs> oh, hey, look, I already know everything about Earth, and I don't want anything to do with it. You're missing out on the joys of life, like uh, pizza. I can't smell. We can't, we can't taste either. All that stuff is in your body. No smell, no taste. Or touch. See? Okay, I get it. I say that and it's like Pixar's soul. It's kind of like a double meaning, I guess. But yeah, so you, you know, when you think about it, the soul of a Pixar movie is very much this kind of film, abstract ideas, uh, complicated uh, concepts, uh, music and animation, just kind of singing. And yeah, that's that's this is a very Pixar kind of movie is what I'm trying to say. Soul is the latest film from Pete Docter. Uh, he co-directed it with Ken Powers, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, it was also written by Docter, along with Ken Powers and Mike Jones. 
And Pete Docter's last film was Inside Out, which is considered by many to be one of Pixar's just best films ever. Uh, it's regularly considered one of like the top tier Pixar films, the best film from Pixar in the last decade, I think is pretty fair to say. It's pretty universally beloved. And before that, Pete Docter, of course, was the director of Up, which similarly had a huge impact on people just for its first eight minutes, honestly. But, you know, people really watch Up and remember those characters. And even though like the second two thirds of it, I guess, are not exactly the thing people remember as readily, they remember the dog and they remember the house with the balloons and all of that. Uh, and then before that, Pete Doctor made Monsters Inc., you know? So I, I think we can say like Pete Doctor, there's a reason he is Pixar's like, creative uh executive officer i think is his title he took over for john lasseter overseeing pixar uh, when john lasseter had to uh resign i guess forcibly and since then doctor has been overseeing a kind of a creative overhaul for original projects at pixar over the next few years we're going to just be seeing more and more original films we had onward earlier this year from dan scanlon we have Luca coming next from Lee Unkrich, his follow-up to Coco. And we also have Turning Red from Domi Shi, the director of Bao, that very, very fun, very weird in a good way short film that appeared before Incredibles 2. So Soul is a film that I think a lot of people had very high expectations for because Pete Doctor has been attached to it, because it's coming five years after one of Pixar's, uh, you know, arguably one of their masterpieces. This new film stars Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey, Graham Norton, their voices, of course, and uh, a lot of people, Angela Bassett, Questlove, Davy Diggs. Uh, it's a huge, huge cast, really great. And it's about a teacher, a middle school music teacher named Joe Gardner, who all his life has been wanting to learn, or not learn, uh, he's been wanting his big break. He has a deep passion for jazz, jazz music, and he's very talented, but life just hasn't really given him the big break he's been searching for. But one day he has an opportunity to play a gig for a very popular musician at this place called the Half Note Club. And just before he gets his chance, just before he has an opportunity to kind of achieve his dreams of being the professional jazz musician, musician he's always wanted to be, something very tragic happens to Joe. And this is only within the first 10 minutes of the film. And suddenly we enter a totally, uh, a total left turn into a film about what it means to be you, about your soul, and what it's up to after you die and before you're born. Uh, that's all I'll say for the plot for now, because one of the things I like about this film is that it goes in a lot of directions you don't really see coming. So I, I want to leave it there for now, and then we can talk about more stuff as we go along. But let's start with you, Will Ashton. You know, you and I first started podcasting oh, wow. over conversations with Pixar films, right? And mm -hmm. it's always fun when a new one comes out and you and I are able to kind of check in on how the studio is doing because it is a very prestigious yeah. studio. How, how, did you, how did you come into Soul? What were your expectations and how did you come out of it? Um, Expectations-wise, they're pretty high. I mean, it's definitely, it was very surreal to pull it up on Disney Plus and watch for the first time there. I mean, obviously, given the circumstances of 2020, uh, their choices were limited, especially if they wanted to get it into the best uh, animated feature race this year. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there was this like sort of surrealism that uh, going into it was very kind of hard to shake at first, which was kind of fine for this film because it is such a wacky and kind of uh, 
absurd film to begin with that it almost fit the vibe of it already. But um, yeah, I mean, as a movie itself, um, I do think at this point in the game, I'm noticing the Pixar formula more formula more because um i just like when i was watching i couldn't escape like just some of the like the tropes and like the different uh recurring themes that tend to come up with their films particularly with some of uh, pete doctor's other films as you mentioned inside out and up particularly but um yeah i mean i i still think that didn't really rob the movie of its enjoyment factor primarily because it is pete doctor doing what he does best which is taking a sort of wacky existential concept but bringing a lot of humanity and heart to it while also getting a lot of really good and fun voice performances out of its, out of his uh, talented cast. But um, yeah, I mean, I do think it's not quite as high up for me as um, inside out and his other films, but that's not to say it's bad. I mean, a somewhat lesser Pete doctor movie is still very good. And I don't believe that's any exception here. I, I still think it is one of the best uh, animated films of the year and certainly one of the better films I've seen this year but um i would say probably in terms of ranking it with my other pixar uh films i would say it's maybe closer to the middle but uh i still did get a lot out of this film and uh, especially by the end even though it does tackle a lot of familiar themes for the uh company and their other films i do think it does really hit that wallop and uh it just showcases why pixar is so good at telling stories like this and uh yeah i had a good time with it yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about how it's not really, it's not in theaters. It was supposed to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, and then it was going to have a summer release. It was going to be Pixar's June movie, and I really wonder, in a normal theatrical environment, how this film would have done. But as it happens, this is now on Disney Plus, and I have a feeling that it's, you know, getting a lot of, like a lot of people are watching it, it seems that way. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but we'll talk about Wonder Woman 1984 soon, and that film has been actually doing really well, uh, both on the service and in its limited theatrical run. But that said, yeah, for me, there are only two Pixar films I have never, I did not watch into theaters uh, for the first time or at all, and that was Cars and Cars 2. Every other Pixar film I have seen for the first time in a movie theater. And yeah, like you said, it is surreal. Uh, you know, whenever there's a new Pixar, I usually flock to the theater. And the fact that I couldn't see Soul in this way, it's, it's a bummer. Uh, I hope that it gets a re-release at some point or that they do put it through theaters. I, I don't know that it would be definitely uh, nice for me. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other uh, Pixar fans. Abby Olszewski. I don't think we've talked about Pixar films very often, definitely not on this show. So I don't really know, how, you know what you think of the studio overall. So if you could start with that and then, of course, talk about Soul. For sure. And actually, I think, John, our introduction was when we both contributed oh, to a right. uh, ranking of Pixar. I, for, I totally forgot unrelevant. So yeah, we are yeah. kind of Pixar tied. Yeah. It might have it might have actually been before that, but yeah, it's, I remember that being a being an important milestone in my, my knowledge of you as a human <laughs> Man, being. That was so. a long time ago, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, I know, I know. Yeah, it feels like it was ages ago, but yeah, I generally really like Pixar movies. I think they're very uniquely creative. Um, I like Pete Doctor as a creative force in that studio too. I think he's he's doing a lot of good for them, and the way that you mentioned their their forthcoming output, I feel like that that speaks very well of his his leading of the studio. Um, I think it's also worth noting, like to bring it to give it kind of a good Christian fun flavor. Uh, actually, Pete Doctor's a Christian. He is, yeah. Um, and like he's been interviewed in places like Christianity Today, yeah, about his faith, which I think really comes through in the way that he chooses to approach stories and the themes that he chooses to address too. 
Um, and yeah, I think that's that's really apparent here as well. There's a lot of uh, compassion and humanity in this movie. Um, I think it's also worth noting that some folks got pretty excited about this being Pixar's first uh, African-American protagonist. Um, and that's a that's a, a cultural perspective that doesn't show up in a lot of Pixar's other movies. And you can tell that like you can you can really see Kemp Powers' influence in in terms of like actually looking at Joe's community and his culture, his his uh, experiences with his family, like his barber, um, his uh, his experience at the at the Half Note Club and interacting with uh, with the musician that he wants to play with. Like that's I feel like there's there's a real depth there that comes with a sense of authenticity. Um, so that was another thing that I really appreciated about it. Um, I will say that I think Pixar's movies usually work best when uh, it's an interesting it's it's like a simple concept explored in a way that you wouldn't expect to. So like with Inside Out, for example, the the concept is just like, what if your emotions were like sentient or like, what if, what if you were actually powered by people living in your brain? Um, and which is, which is a fairly simple thing to come up with, right? Like it's, it's an interesting perspective, but it's, it's not terribly complex. This one is a little more complex, I think, than than we're used to seeing from Pixar. I think it mostly works. There are a couple of instances where I feel like there might be a little too much going on. Um, but other than that, I mean, I still think it's really good. I I think I'm I'm kind of with Will. I'd say it kind of ranks in the around the middle of my favorite Pixar movies, but it's like a high middle. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like I am definitely the most favorable because I am just in love with this movie. I just, everything about it, um, with the exception of like one or two things that I thought were a little iffy, um, as the, particularly things that happened toward the middle of the film. But I, I, do, I don't know what it is about this movie, but everything about it stylistically and thematically just completely worked for me. And I recognize, you know, a lot of people are kind of coming at this and being slightly disappointed or maybe their expectations were too high. I also had pretty high expectations, but I was worried that this film was going to be a little basic or that it was going to feel too much like Inside Out for me. But to be clear, this film really hit me in a lot of places that are very unique to me. Um, Not unique to me, I guess, but like things that I really respond to are jazz music and existential questions that keep me up at night so you can probably see why this movie clicked with me so well because it does all it does the jazz thing just so well and the thing i love the most about this movie is how perfectly the music syncs with the story and the story's message because like it's just a brilliant move to choose jazz music as your music because jazz is about improv it's black improv improv improvisational music uh it's about like making things up as you go along and enjoying the moment and that's exactly the theme of this movie like i don't there's something it just about a simple combination of that and like all of the rules like being in the zone and how lost soul works and all of these things we learn along the way i just thought everything fit just right and it was one of those things where it's like i couldn't believe what i was watching that it was something i hadn't really considered before but it just felt right uh, i have to echo you know it was really great to see just a different type of pixar character uh you know we we do tend to get like middle-aged pixar characters like mr incredible and sometimes older ones like in up and all of that but we in this movie we have an african-american middle-aged music teacher and it's the kind of thing where 
what other animation studio would take a risk like that, where they would really center their entire story around that perspective when they're interested in making money because kids are watching it? And that, that's one of the things I really appreciate about this movie is that it's willing to go to different places to tell its story. I love how the movie also speaks to people of all ages. I don't know if you two would agree with that, though. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. I think this really feels like uh, Pixar is kind of taking a step in a different direction audience wise. Like this is not a movie that I could see little kids really um, fully comprehending, I think, on the level that like their parents would. Um, and that's I think that's fine. I think that's admirable and great. Like animation is an art form and it deserves to appeal to a wide audience, not just kids. And so I feel like this is this is a more mature movie than we're used to seeing. And it does feel like an artistic risk. And so I I kind of applaud it for for taking that risk. Yeah, I mean, similar to Abby, I, I always feel that kids films should strive to be a little bit more mature, a little bit or willing to be somewhat mature in their themes. Not to say that they have to be oppressively dark or anything, but I think sometimes studios tend to forget how thoughtful and nuanced kids can be in their thinking and how um, these type of films can be very accessible to them. I, I haven't really talked to <laughs> a lot of families about this film and seen how they're respond how they're responding to it. But I do think if anything, like it, they'll grow to appreciate this film and what it's saying and the themes that's communicating as time goes along. So I, I definitely valued that aspect of it a lot. I, I think Pixar is smart to recognize that a lot of the people who trust their brand and hold a lot of esteem and credibility for anything that has Pixar on the title a lot of us are millennials. A lot of us are older. We're in our late 20s. We're in our 30s. And so they are making movies that appeal to us in addition to kids because they know that we're having kids. They know that we have nieces and nephews. And it's it's a smart marketing choice just because a movie like this, I think, is kind of made for people who are, at least for me, like thinking about uh, the choices we're making now that are going to affect us when we do hit middle age. And that's something that I, I was that was really hitting me like throughout the movie of like, am I going to be like Joe someday? Is that okay? And then this movie just got me to really think about things that I don't let myself think about. And it had a message about, you know, appreciating things executed in a way that is way better than this. You know, normally when we get movies that are like sort of uh, appreciate what you have, they can feel really preachy, but this movie has a lot of subtlety and nuance that I wasn't expecting. And I definitely wasn't expecting the message that comes through here. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to mention, because Abby, you touched on this, the how Ken Powers affected the script. Uh, I saw that like, for example, the barbershop scene was completely his idea. He came to Pete Doctor and was like, we need to put this scene in there. And so that's why it feels like when you're in that barbershop, you can just sort of tell that this is like being written by people who have just a, a real understanding of like what this like everyday thing is like, and it informs the message. And it's also just really funny to watch. Yeah. And that was something that I had seen people when this was sort of early, like early views, critics and, and folks getting an early look at it. That was something that I could see a lot of people responding to, like on social media, that this was something that clearly had a lot of meaning for them. So I thought that was really cool that there was, there seemed to be a lot of really good, uh, thoughtful collaboration in, in this, uh, filmmaking process, which I think also extends to the music. Cause like we've yeah. got almost two different competing scores here, right? Like we've got, uh, all of the jazz music from, uh, John Batiste, John Batiste yeah. which, yeah, which quick shout out. I just recently learned that a uh, former college classmate of mine who is a uh, professional musician, she plays the French horn, uh, was featured in that soundtrack. So I thought oh, that wow. was super oh, cool. Wow. 
Um, yeah, I know. That's awesome. So shout out, Kyra. Good job. Um, but the other half of that is uh, uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, like giving us a much more upbeat score, I feel like, than we're used to seeing from them. Um, to the point yeah. where like, I, I hadn't realized they'd worked on the film. And when they showed up in the credits, like I was floored. <laughs> it's really good, too. Yeah. The soundtrack, even by itself, is extraordinarily fun to listen to. Like, I highly recommend it. I wrote my entire soul review while listening to the soundtrack, and I've been going back to it over and over. It is kind of amazing how their sort of upbeat score that they do, especially like in the soul part of the movie, is like the soul world or whatever, uh, how that fits so well with the jazz motif from John Batiste. It's, it, it fits like amazingly well. I'm very impressed. Yeah, they're having quite a good uh, month as yeah. well as a good year with this and Mank coming out so closely to one another. For sure, for sure. So, uh, you know, I've gushed about this movie quite a bit. I am curious, you know, you you two have both mentioned some of the things that kind of hold you back. We obviously don't want to give things away, but, uh, well, yeah, if, if you can maybe be a little bit more specific, like, you know, what, what were some of the things in the film that you felt like maybe could have been better? Or was there anything that uh, I've said that maybe you would push back on? Um, nothing in particular. I mean, I, I, I don't want to suggest that I have too, too many criticisms or in that critical of the film. Cause I did like it a good bit. Um, I do think as some people have pointed out already, I, I do think this concept is maybe not as fully fleshed out as, um, some of the other films we've seen from Pete doctor, but that just might be something where I have to see the film more than once to really, um, appreciate the contextualism of it and how much he's putting into this. Cause I do think by the end, what he, what they're doing, especially in that one ending montage sequences sequence is, um, some of the most like thoughtful and mature and nuanced filmmaking that Pixar has ever done. And, uh, I think that that moment for me really sealed the movie and what made it work, uh, as far as like the big picture is concerned. But, um, I do think, like by and large, like I think the the concept or at least the story mechanics of it just kind of feel like what we've grown to expect from Pixar. Just like I, I, I just feel like similar to Onward, like I just feel like there's a kind of formula at this point that they're establishing. Not to say it doesn't work at this point or that it's faulty or flawed or anything like that. It's just that I'm kind of noticing the blueprint more and more as I get older. And that's fine because ultimately these movies are for young audiences as well as uh, audiences of my age and older. But um, I just feel like maybe it's just me getting older and realizing that uh, the studio has a formula that works and that's not quite as adventurous as it was maybe even uh, a few years earlier. But at the same time, like you said, there are so many risks and different things they try with this film and so many ways they succeed in doing so that I don't want to discredit the film or suggest that they're doing anything like incompetent or wrong. It's just that I think this one just didn't hit me as hard as some of their past films did but that's not to suggest that the movie uh didn't pack a wall up at the end there yeah i was i was fine with the story structure but to kind of jump off of what you're saying i think that picks one of pixar's best story structures in my opinion is ratatouille i think like the entire like script there and how everything happens and how the movie goes along it really is like against the usual pixar formula and so like every time i rewatch it it's it's a thrill to watch because like every scene it just feels so perfectly considered and um soul definitely has like like you're saying like a lot of this uh similar like we need to do this to do this you know very toy story 2 you know very like uh onward i guess in terms of like go to a place and meet this character uh, but I, I do think it, it a mission, yeah, a mission, yeah, sure, it, it, yeah. <laughs> um, I did, I did see this a second time, and I got to say, the second watch is way better. It was for me because there were so many jokes that went totally over my head that I missed because I was trying to understand the movie. <laughs> um, 
but this movie's a lot funnier on the second watch, at least it was for me. And I, I was able to catch like a lot of philosophy jokes that I had just totally overlooked. So uh, I do think like to what Will, I, I think you were saying, like it, it is a film that especially if kids are like watching again and again, are hopefully it's going to grow in their estimation. Um, is there anything else you wanted to point at Abby, positive or negative? Um, just uh, how, how are you feeling about this one overall? Yeah, it's, I, I still feel like overall very positive about it. Um, the only criticisms I have are, are fairly small. I think uh, we, what you guys were mentioning before about like how Pixar movies are often like driven by a character on a specific mission. I think in this particular instance, there are two characters with two missions that are like similar, but kind of distinct. And for me, I feel like that's kind of where we lose focus a little bit. Like there's there are two main characters essentially. And those goals are kind of competing in a way that it, it sometimes kind of pulls focus from where I'd like it to be. It can be a little bit hard to figure out like where, where our thematic interest really should lie. Um, but that's, I think that's pretty minor. And the, uh, the emotional stuff that comes through, I think is really relevant in a way that kind of puts all the rest of that to bed. Um, I, I have actually watched it a couple of times and I think the second time I was slightly more critical of it from a structure angle, but I also just really enjoyed the process of watching it a lot more too. Um, which yeah, it makes it sound like I'm, I'm 50, 50 on this, but it's still, I'm, I'm still pretty positive on it. I don't know that it's necessarily like such an instant home run for me as some of the other Pixar movies are, but I, I do like it a lot. Yeah. I, th I think that because we were talking about formula, the buddy comedy thing is something that they love to do. There's always like, a, it's always like a two hander, you know, with Pixar films and yep. uh, yeah. Two mismatched personalities yep. who yep. are forced to join together for a common goal that uh, ultimately has a heartfelt or emotional or personal connection to one or both their stories. Yeah. I mean, I think like the only films that they don't really lean on that is probably like Incredibles, like both of the Incredibles films don't really have that structure. And yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating how often they go back to it, but it definitely works for the vast majority of their films. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not complaining in that regard. <laughs> so for sure. Yeah, it's like you said. There's the formula is a formula for a reason. Yeah, I guess final thoughts on this. I, you know, the last thing I'll say is that it, there's a lot of conversation in this film about like, you know, where do you get your personality? What makes you you? And you know, all that stuff is just, you know, I, I, it makes me think a lot. I really love the soul world and how it's constructed. Uh, we didn't talk about a lot of specifics like the the Jerry's and Terry and kind of its take on the afterlife and how I thought it was very tasteful, like tastefully neutral. Like I, I think that they put a lot of hard work into making sure that you could watch this no matter what your like religious faith is and not feel like I, I think it's hard to be offended. Like you have to try to be offended, I think, by this movie, honestly. Um for me, criticism wise, I think there are some things I mentioned before. There's like some tropes that happen in the middle that I was not super on board with. And, you know, Pixar does this a lot where their human characters become something else for like a majority of the film. They do it a lot. They do it to, you know, their white characters. And I, it is a little weird. Like it, it kind of strikes me as a little odd. They're doing it with a black character, but I think overall it works, but it's, it's definitely, definitely something to bring up. I know a lot of people, um, in, you know, in that community have sort of like pointed out that it's getting a little old. It's, it's something that they, they wish didn't keep happening, you know, in animated films. Yeah. I mean, 
And also considering that Tina Fey as an actress and writer also has kind of a checkered history with racial depictions in some of her work, which I think is also fueling the fire there. Uh, agreed, agreed. Yeah, we didn't talk about 22 that much. I think the character surprised me being a little bit more funny and uh, fun to watch the next. I thought this character was really going to great uh, me, but that ended up not really happening. I thought it was fine. Um, and I thought the voice acting across the board was really, really great. Graham Norton uh, stole it for me. Uh, but man, Jamie Foxx just like disappears into the role. I, I was not thinking about the actor the entire time. And this character just came alive to me. And it, it's, it's such a well-realized character. And there's so many scenes we could pick out of this that just really, really hit me. So I'm a big fan. Um, I am a very, very, very high A- minus on Soul. It's definitely one of my favorite films of 2020. Uh, what about you, Will Ashton? Uh, what was your final grade on this one? Um, for me, I think I'm a pretty firm to high B plus on this film. Um, like we were saying before, like I, I don't think I'm putting this in quite high esteem as some of the other Pixar films, uh, but especially for like the second phase of their company's career, as far as just like looking at some of the recent films that they've done, I think this does stand up with some of their better works. And I, I do th agree with you that the voice uh, voice acting is quite strong, particularly from Jamie Foxx, as well as uh, Rachel House. And uh, I also really enjoy seeing or hearing uh, Richard Aoti and everything. We haven't mentioned that he's also in the film um, and he's always fun. I, I'm always happy when he gets more work. But um, yeah, I mean, I think in addition to what we've talked about before, um, I, I, I think the only other thing I'd really want to champion is not only the animation, but the character designs, which um, the way it's able to kind of create these two very different but connected worlds in a way that, like you said, is dealing with a lot of existential themes and concepts, but makes it very fun, inspired and uh, just really like a pleasure to look at and, and watch from an animation and production standpoint. I, I always have to credit Pixar for obviously having some of the best animators out there and doing some really incredible and thoughtful work there. Um, that's just a testament to how they continue to evolve as a company in very particular and very uh, present ways. But yeah, I mean, as far as the movie itself, um, I did quite like this. I, I do have to agree with a lot of your uh, praises and a lot of good notices I've heard so far. But yeah, I don't think this one's going to like really win me over as much as some of the other Pixar movies that I've seen in the past. But this is also one that I can see myself really getting into upon rewatch and rewatch. So I'm excited if I do get the chance to rewatch it soon to grow in my estimation of it and hopefully be where you are. Sounds good. And Abby Chessie, final grades. And you can have the last word on Soul. Anything we've failed to mention that it's, it's got to come up. Oh boy. Um, no, I, yeah, I really enjoyed the voice acting in this as well. Uh, and I think Rachel house has, she's, she's pretty awesome. I enjoy getting to, getting to listen to her in this. I think her voice work is really fun, uh, as is Graham Norton's. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that, that Pixar really seems to be trying something new in a lot of different areas with this. Um, uh, like you mentioned, a lot of the formula still remains the same, but like they're playing with different animation styles. Um, and different like forms of character design, like all within the same movie. They're uh, diversifying their their character stock a little bit, which is also great. Um, even if there are some elements of it that don't quite work, I feel like some of that might just be kind of growing pains. Um, I hope that that is something that just kind of continues to improve as they continue to develop, and I think it will. Um, Overall, yeah, I, I'm I'm still pretty positive on this. Um, I think in my review for Crooked Marquee, I gave it an A minus, and I think that still stands. Um, the the issues that I have with it are pretty minor. I think the strengths of it really far outweigh that, uh, and it's it's really enjoyable. I think there's a lot of layers and something that you can come back to again and again and really get 
I think more out of it different times that you see it. Like I'd be really curious to, uh, this is like long haul, but like come back to it when I am actually Joe's age in the film and like watch it again and see if I feel any differently about it. Um, yeah, yeah. but like being <laughs> at the age that I am in the profession that I am. And I think John, you probably feel a little similarly. It sounds like this is, this is the kind of thing that like makes you think about the turning points in your life, um, a little more closely. And in some cases, some of those lines hit to hit home, like uncomfortably hard, um, but like in a good way, in a, in a really good and thoughtful way. So yeah, a minus from me. All right. So a minus for me and Abby, B plus from Ashton. It sounds like we definitely recommend this one. And I have a feeling a lot of people listening have already seen it and are probably contemplating the film right now, I assume. I was going to say, did we talk about Burrow? Did you two see that? The short film that came along with it? The Spark short? Not yet. Yeah. Okay. No, I haven't seen that either. Okay. Yeah. That, that came up after I watched the film. So I, I got a chance to watch it. I don't, I, I don't know if that would have been like the short that would have premiered before the film. So. I think that's a Spark short. So. Okay. Never mind. Then uh, I thought that was what was supposed to be like their their short before the film. I can be if I you was want. Mistaken. Uh. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It can be whatever I want it to be, I guess. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and did we mention that this is the uh, first Pixar movie without John Ratzenberg involved as a like voice cameo? He was in there. Was he? Yeah. I heard he wasn't. Yeah, he was the voice. Yeah, yeah, he was the voice of uh there's there's a Hall of You scene and he is one of the characters who uh tells um Joe that he can't get the gig or something like that. I I'll have to double check, but I'm okay. pretty sure I thought that was him. Okay, I, I I just was told that he was in the film, and I missed hearing him in the film. So huh. if that's the case, I'll have to fact check that. It. But yeah, I could have sworn yeah. that was him, but um, I could be wrong. But all right, Soul is available to stream right now on Disney Plus. It's just a hundred and six minutes. You can check that out along with Burrow. It's a uh, unofficial, but possibly official. We don't know. <laughs> uh, short film. Let's move on to our next review. We're gonna. This is a equally big film if not bigger probably bigger i guess in some ways uh, wonder woman 1984 the sequel to 2017's wonder woman which kicked off gal gadot uh her solo franchise for this character uh this of course sees gadot returning along with chris pine mysteriously uh who died in the first film spoilers uh, but he's back in this one under very mysterious circumstances the cast also includes Kristen wig and pedro pascal Let's go to you, Will Ashton. Try to sum up Wonder Woman 1984. What's the setup for this film? And let us know what you thought. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, this is a direct continuation to Patty Jenkins' 2017 film. However, we follow, uh, I believe the first film, I know it was in World War One, so that would have been, uh, this is me trying to uh, figure out if I got my history correct. Would that be like 19, early 1930s? No, 1910s. So 40, 1910s. All right. Yeah. Well, fair enough. <laughs> World War One was like, it ended in like 1917. Yeah. I, I figured I was off because I know World War Two is uh, the 1940s. So fair enough. I was off. But yeah, so we're continuing the story from uh, 70 years after the fact, actually a little more than 70 years. Um, but not a lot has changed for uh, Diana Prince, i.e. Uh, Wonder Woman. She's uh, living in Washington, D.C. now, but she has a pretty quiet and uh, domesticated life. She doesn't have a partner or anyone that she really shares it with because um, presumably, you know, she's kind of seen the cycle of life a couple of times at this point and realizes that it's better to uh, just be by yourself at this point than to have to uh, revisit the uh, life and death of uh, her fellow humans. But um, at this point, we get acquainted with her with a um, anthropologist, uh, I believe, played by um, Kristen Wiig. She's a gemologist. Uh, gemologist, yeah. 
um, who becomes basically a ally and a friend throughout the film. But uh, as we're introduced to both those characters, uh, there's this mysterious rock formation that they find that uh, as they spend more time with it, they realize it has kind of these mystical, magical powers that uh, in layman terms basically grants people's wishes. Um, but you only really get one wish and you have to hold on to it. But um, yeah, at, at this point, Diana uses that power to uh, bring back Steve, albeit in a uh, fairly unorthodox fashion, while Barbara uses this power to uh, basically be as cool and awesome as Wonder Woman, although that has some uh, negative side effects as the film goes along. But uh, as it's all going along, there is this businessman called uh, Maxwell Lorenzo or Lord. Lin, Lin, Maxwell sorry, Lord. Lord Maxwell Lord. Yeah. But I was doing his full name. <laughs> but yeah, his uh, his uh, business name is Max Lord. And uh, he is a very thinly veiled uh, metaphor or allegory for Trump. Um, I, I don't think the movie wants that to be a secret. Well, yeah, he was uh, in the comics, yeah. too, because the when right. he premiered in the comics, it was I think it was the 80s. And it was very much like coming off of the, the Trump aesthetic from them. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, the movie takes place in the 80s. So it's like, you know, they go hand in hand here for obvious reasons. But basically, uh, Max Lord is very attracted and uh, intrigued by the powers of the Dreamstone. And he uses that for very nefarious reasons. And that's the kind of broad strokes plot of Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, this is a long movie. So it's like doesn't even begin to really cover it. Uh, It's two and a half hours long. So this movie, I think, has been received by in so many different ways, like across like I, I feel like everybody has a very polarized opinion of Wonder Woman 1984. And I have a feeling I'm going to be like a lone wolf over here because I I enjoyed this film and I, I genuinely liked it. But it seems like I am very, I am a minority opinion uh, across like the critical spectrum because it looks like people really hated this. I, I saw some some takes that were really taking this film to task and I don't fully know where you two stand. So we'll start with you, Abby. Uh, what's your take on Wonder Woman 1984? Did it work for you? Oh, boy. Uh, no, no, it didn't. <laughs> um, I should start by saying that I'm I'm a pretty big fan of uh, the 2017 Wonder Woman. Uh, that was a movie that I thought, like, there, there were some elements of it that I didn't love as much, but, like, the ideas behind it and the thoughtfulness of the representation powering it dramatically, at least, I thought were really powerful. I responded to it in a really strong way. And I feel like uh, Wonder Woman 1984 uh, has as little care <laughs> as the original movie did have care. Um, there's there's not a lot of uh, attention paid to, like, for instance, the setting. There are some, like, actual setting based, like wa- Washington, D.C. in 1984 based things that it gets really wrong. Um, that took me about three minutes to Google and correct, um, not to be cinema sinzy about stuff. I try really hard not to be, but I, I felt really strongly about that. It was kind of one of those contract writer things where if you don't get the details right, what else are you getting wrong? Um, so that, that was an issue for me. I feel like, uh, some of the elements that people have taken issue with, uh, take wise, I, I tend to agree with, I think there's, there's, there's a standard basically that, uh, I think that the first film set that the second film showed me it wasn't really willing to hold up. And that was really disappointing. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot here that I think kind of make it, a, makes it a disappointing sequel in my eyes. 
We should mention that this is hitting HBO Max along with a theatrical release, and it's actually doing really well theatrically, like despite the pandemic. Um, it's made like $85 million so far, and yeah, that's better than Tenet. Yeah, yeah. It's because it's going to be like America's like um, number one COVID movie <laughs> um, that's come yeah. out during COVID. But uh, you are able to watch an HBO Max right now, um, even though it's going to be on premium video on demand, uh, I think, like in a month. So it's kind of a fascinating uh, rollout strategy. We've, we've already talked about that quite a bit on this show, how all that, how all that is going down and why. But uh, we should mention the screenplay is by Patty Jenkins, along with Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan. And they really like the story is really coming from Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns. Uh, Will, what did you think of Wonder Woman 1984? Uh, I'm so curious. Yeah. Um, I would have to say I'm mixed on the film, um, mainly because of uh, many of the reasons that Abby already brought up in that um, story-wise and structurally, this is just a pretty sloppy, messy film. Um, it does feel like a 90-minute plot that was uh, outstretched into close to three hours. Um, which uh, in some ways I kind of admire because it has this sort of like laissez-faire pacing at some times that I think bugs some people. But for me, I, I kind of appreciate it. For instance, um, there's a scene, I want to say a little bit before the halfway mark, where it's just like a 10-minute scene where uh, Steve and Diana Prince are just like walking around a like space museum. And it doesn't serve the plot. It doesn't really like add anything to the narrative beyond does, just like they're I'll reconnecting. Talk, I'll talk about yeah, it. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, it like it shows that they're reconnecting. It, it reestablishes their chemistry and stuff like I get from that standpoint. But like like it, it has like this indulgence is what I'm trying to say that like in some respects I appreciate in some ways it does feel pretty tedious and exhausting, especially when like you're just watching this at home. And uh, I feel like if I were in theaters, I, I wouldn't have that like restless leg syndrome that I sometimes do when I have them at home and like you feel like you you don't really want to pay attention as much that's one of the reasons why i tend to prefer seeing movies like this in theaters because i can fully devote my concentration to it um but as far as the movie itself like i i think there are many aspects of like the characterization of um barbara's character which i i, I think if they had just made her the primary antagonist of the film i think this movie probably would have come together a little bit smoother it, like they had basically switched um, Max Lord and Cheetah's characters into like basically being the opposite, where it's like Kristen Wake was mostly the main antagonist, while Max Lord was like the B character. I, I think this would have been a little bit more accessible and a little bit more consistently appealing. As it is, I think it just kind of feels a little flip flopped in that regard. Like I, I just don't find Max Lord's character to be that interesting. I think he is entertaining in the sense that like Pedro Pascual was like really into like the idea of just being weird and wacky with this character and he's just like all right i'm basically playing drump if he got a magic wish machine or a magic wish rock like fine i'm committed i'm going to play this up in a very early 2000s superhero fashion and i applaud him for that i think some people are giving him criticism for that reason but i think he knows that he's in a goofy comic book movie and he is just fully into that and uh more power to him but um i just i just think most of my problems with the movie ultimately come from a script uh place where i just feel like it just feels like the script is very hastily rushed into production like it feels like there's a lot of things that they maybe just took some time maybe they gave it a second or third draft and they just really concentrate on what they're doing what they're saying this may have been a little bit more palatable but as it is it's uh it's an entertaining mess i'll have to say 
Yeah, this is this is really tough because I hear what everybody is saying about it. And it's not it's not that I disagree with everything. It's not that I think the criticisms are wrong. It's just there's so much I appreciate about this movie that I feel is getting lost a little bit. Like I feel like we've seen so many superhero movies at this point. And when I was watching this, it was just going for something really different. And in my opinion, doing it in a very entertaining fashion. And yeah, it's so goofy. This movie is drunk on so much cheese. Like, I think that mall scene in the very beginning will determine, I think, how on board you are going to be for yeah. the rest of the film. Because And that's my favorite scene in the film, I'll say. Like, that's that's the high point of the film. I, I love it. It takes so many weird swings. There's literally like a little kid giving the biggest cartoon wink in the history of superhero movies. And it made me think of Superman too. It made me think of like classic, you know, superhero films, and it's, it's kind of going back to that era. But what I really appreciate about the film is that I actually thought the story was interesting. I thought the like the wish stuff and all of that it felt different. Like one of my criticisms with the first movie was, especially with that third act, it was just such a such a boring like limp to the finish line after the no man's land scene because like the villain is who you expect the the villain is somebody we have to punch a bunch of times and we got to save the world from world war you know whatever you the stakes just for me were not there and i just did not care after that triumphant you know uh iconographic scene but in this movie, I was really in it the whole time. It it also struck me as like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, you know, like which are also trying to harken back to Superman. Because those films just have like such a heightened, you know, sense of reality. I like how this movie forsakes all the other DC films that have come out and it's, it's just it's just doing its own thing. So for me, it was just it was memorable. It like I think the villain's motivations were actually kind of interesting. And like what, for example, what Max Lord decides to do with the Dreamstone, I actually thought was original like or at least like original for this kind of movie like i think you know we have seen it's sort of in other films but you know i think the mechanics of his powers stuff that he has i thought i was i found unpredictable and i found like oh it has rules it has limitations uh there was something you mentioned about the space scene will and i actually think that it does serve the plot a lot i think like the overall message of this movie is it actually is commenting on the 80s and how somebody coming from the 19 teens would come into this decade and look at all of the excess and look at all of the innovation, how far we've come and just be so excited about it and be so enraptured by it. Whereas like everybody else in the world is like constantly wishing to have more and everybody wants more and more and more. The villain wants more and they get, no one's satisfied with what they have. And it's just weird because it's kind of like a it has that kind of in common with soul in some weird ways. I, I couldn't help but connect the two movies. Uh, they have kind of similar messages, but I thought that, that that all that stuff really worked. I felt like, you know, if you're going to include Chris Pine, you might as well try to get some story out of it. And I think they did. This thing has tons of flaws, but I just, I forgave everything because I just, I just found myself really satisfied with all of the weird turns it took. I will say that the thing that did not work for me at all was a lot of the special effects. I think they were kind of going for like uh, certain like like harkening back to the Linda Carter days, and man, it just it it was weirdly bad. Uh, there's two particular scenes: one where she's running, and another where uh, we see Cheetah, and it is just 
it reminded me of the first film in terms of like bad CGI. I don't understand it because this movie had a huge budget, like reportedly 200 million, probably more like 300. I do not understand where the budget went, except that it looks like they shot it on maybe 16 millimeters. So like when it's not an action scene, it looks really great. Uh, 35. There, was it 35? Th- there were scenes that were looked really sharp and I was really blown away by how good and how like thoughtful the cinematography from Matthew Jensen was. Right. I, I believe that would be 35 if it's sharper. If it's a little bit like grainier and crisper, it would be 16, I believe. But I, I'm not like a technician, so don't quote me on that. I don't know. I, I Abby, do you have less respect for me now that I have shilled for Wonder Woman 1984? A little bit. A little bit. Not going to lie. No, um, I, I think like I, I did have fun watching this movie, although it was more of a Mystery Science Theater 3000 experience. Um, I watched it with a couple of friends and we were both uh, we were all three just kind of jaws on the floor. We couldn't quite believe what we were seeing and why the movie had made these choices to do this stuff. Um, I, I do like I, I I do like Pedro Pascal's performance. For me, I think it's the highlight of the movie uh, just because he's on his own weird wavelength. And um, like I'm I I was fine with all of the weird choices that he made. Um, all of the. Uh, comparisons that I've seen come out afterward, like there were some people comparing him to like Brendan Fraser. There were some people comparing him to like a loser Bob Odenkirk character on like Mr. Show and all of that. I was like, these are all good things. None of these things that you're describing are things I dislike. So like I was, I was there for that energy. Um, I think the place where it really disappointed me though, was, was in some of the characterization, particularly the characterization of Wonder Woman, because in the first movie, I feel like she is such a strong and interesting and independent character. And I know we we kind of lose some of that since she's been in the world a little bit, but I feel like we also just lose some of that for, I guess, the sake of her needing to pine for Steve. Um, I would have enjoyed seeing more of her like being active and enjoying the world that she's in and um, kind of exploring different relationships with people. Um, I also feel like uh, Kristen Wiig's character is kind of reduced to a very simplistic kind of set up in terms of being like kind of mousy and nerdy at the beginning and then kind of undergoing this massive transformation, which in a way, I guess that feels like kind of a throwback that is appropriate to like the the stories of the era that it's trying to encapsulate. But I mean, I don't care. It's 2020. We deserve characters that are more well-rounded. I don't care if it's a throwback. The throwback is bad. Um, I'll say it. I said it. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where I feel about that, it, where, where it really kind of let me down. I feel like this is a movie that that this is a franchise that has proven that it can have strong female characters that are more than just like the archetype of strong female character. And I feel like it doesn't let its characters have that, uh, yeah, kind of have that embodiment this time around. Yeah. I, I do have to agree with the whole like weirdness around how she hasn't gotten over Steve Trevor. And like, they even say something in the movie at one point, it was like, there's way better guys than me. <laughs> like Even he's kind of like surprised. Like, why, why do you like me this much? And I, I don't really get it either. It, that choice of like, just, I, I think a lot of it does have to do with them wanting to bring Chris Pine back. So the story sort of has to like involve her missing him a lot. And, but they don't do a great job of like explaining why, like they could have done a lot more to sort of like, kind of like Will, what you were talking about, where she's sort of gone through a couple life cycles and yeah, I was hoping they would do that. Yeah. Like, I don't think they do it really well though. I don't, I don't think they tell that side of her personality 
and like maybe why she's sort of feeling like, you know, her best friend is gone at this point from like the 19 teens. She really apparently like imprinted on this guy and she's sort of feeling like, you know, I've lived a life and uh, that it, like a life in this term in the terms of like a person here. And I just still really miss this guy. I feel like I got cut short. Like there's a way to do it, but I don't think they do that super convincingly. And I wonder if it has a lot to do with Godot's acting, which for me is really confusing because there's a lot of there's a lot of scenes where it's good and she has the normal presence and charm that she has but there's other times where her acting is just really bad yeah i would agree with that too i feel like it was kind of inconsistent and uh again i feel like it was more consistent in the uh in the first movie maybe that energy just plays a lot better when uh that character is like meeting the world for the first time rather than being expressed in somebody who's been around for a while. I'm not sure. But yeah, I was I was surprised by how much of it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, I made this comparison because someone pointed it out to you, John, but um, it does feel like Gal Gadot is in this uh, phase of her career. She's basically like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando, where like she clearly has presence and she can hold her own action scene. And I think, and like you said, like some scenes like she is committed to and it's a clearly a very earnest performance, but like line readings are still not her forte yet like she yeah she'll there's like these clearly like introspective moments where she's supposed to be very like reserved and like you know in internally like conflicted but just i just don't think gal gadot is at that point in her career as an actress where she can really communicate that uh fully but i i, I do think she is growing in some respects i, I can notice having rewatched wonder woman 2017 before this i do think she is growing and becoming a little bit more consistent as an actress, as Abby mentioned. But yeah, I I, th I still think she has a little ways to go before she can really communicate some of the themes that are trying to be uh, come out here, but I just don't think are really fully expressed. Before we wrap this thing up, I know Abby and I need to have some words about uh, studio notes and whether or not, uh, what, what caused this? Like, where is this coming from? I know that some people are saying that this, this film kind of, it's not Patty Jenkins necessarily who like made some of the decisions that are in this. And I, I'm, I'm sure that's true to some extent, but from what I can tell, uh, Patty Jenkins was the one who really wanted this to be as long as it was. The studio wanted to shorten this film a bit and they wanted to make some other kind of like choices to like kind of keep this thing from being overindulgent to be, to be totally clear. We do not know the specifics. We don't know for sure, like who decided what, but I, I guess my impression, and it could be totally wrong, could be totally off base, is that they let Patty Jenkins, for the most part, do what she wanted to do here. I, I never really got the impression that like anything here was like against her, like like it was in the first Wonder Woman, where they kind of like reined her in a bit. I think in this one, I think they did kind of let her go for it, uh, along with Jeff Johns. I just think that I don't think Jeff Johns is the best screenwriter, honestly. Uh, I think that he has great talents and other ways and i just think it's a weird mishmash of creative sensibilities but abby i don't know am i, I are we gonna argue let's do it um i don't know that we're gonna argue that hard uh mostly i think we i, I wanted to argue with you over our reactions to the movie but also i mean you know let people like what they want to like if you really enjoy the silliness of wonder woman 1984 i'm not going to stop you um but yeah i think i i saw some stuff like particularly in the opening scene, which takes place in uh, Themyscira, the, the characterization of the Amazons this time around felt a lot more modely and a lot less like actual athletic women like we saw in the first film. And that to me kind of rang 
possibly of producer influence. I feel like, you know, if you're the filmmaker who argued for like having actual Olympians on horses in the first Wonder Woman, you may not be as keen on having people of a different build in your sequel, but that might just be me. Um, and yeah, it was, there were a few instances of, of things like that where I felt like perhaps there was a little bit of input that made it a less strong feminist film, I think overall. Do you think that opening was like a reshoot thing? Because it kind of felt like they tacked it on later, at least watching the film. Like it doesn't like it, it thematically is supposed to connect to the film, but doesn't like narratively come back to play with any particular point in the film. So I was very curious what the incentive was for putting that scene in this film. Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if maybe it hadn't been tacked on in some way, just because I I think that the the way that it introduces the uh, the particular theme I think kind of shows up in the movie, but not in a way that's super explicit. Like you kind of have to do some mental gymnastics to figure out how it all ties together. It's especially like the Robin Wright monologue is like the only thing that really connects it to the rest of the film. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, like, I don't know, like it just seemed like one of those things that like, I could very easily see this being like a rewrite thing. Kind of similar to the very last scene of the film. Like that also felt like they might add that on later because some people are like, what happened to that dude? Um, You might have to cut that out because that might be a little uh, spoilery. But um yeah, I just don't uh, some scenes that's kind of felt like they added them on later, which gives this weird film like the film, this weird vibe of being like both like overstuffed and undercooked at the same time. It's a very odd mix. But what we grow to expect now with superhero movies, I guess. Yeah, you know, I if I was going to sort of like rewrite this film, I think, yeah, you don't really need that scene. Like what it's doing to establish like where she came from. The first movie really does that enough. I don't know if they just were like, we got to have one Themyscira scene. We have to have Connie Nielsen and Robin Wright in there. And yeah, it does feel tacked on. I don't think you need that. I don't think this movie really needs to go to that territory. I would have much preferred any like start off where the first movie left off with like Chris Pine sacrificing himself. And then maybe we get a montage or some explanation of what she's been up to. That's better than just like pictures that don't really tell us what's going on with her. I don't know that they could have done a much better ramp up to the mall scene, which is where I think things get really established. So yeah, I, I certainly understand. I recognize this thing has problems and there are some choices that get made in this film that frustrated me for sure. But I think the things I like about it, just that's why I end up giving it a pass. And I, I enjoy it a lot more than I think um, some other people are for sure. Will, uh, what's your, what's your final grade on WW84? Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm right smack in between you two, as far as my like estimation of the film in that this does have very much, it it was very reminiscent of amazing Spider-Man two to me in that it felt like, like similar to that film, Mark Webb basically got carte blanche to some extent to make a sequel to his successful, uh, superhero film prior to that. And similar to how that film had, uh, Orchi and uh, Kurtzman as screenwriters kind of giving like mixed success as uh, screenwriters. This film, I think maybe Jeff Johns uh, and Jenkins, Patty Jenkins were kind of giving like kind of conflicting ideas that just maybe just didn't really come to a very coherent center uh, resulting in a very kind of like fussy and uh, inconsistent and overlong film. But I do agree with you, John, that like I, I appreciate movies that are willing to have this much money and just like go wild with it. I'd rather have something like this. that's a little bit more memorable in its weirdness and absurdities. Then something like Thor, the dark world where it's like, it's a similarly messy sequel, but like, I forget most of it. So it's like, I just don't really care. Like this one, I'm going to go back and forth on like the things I like. And I think there's some aspects to its ridiculousness that I do really appreciate, uh, particularly as being uh, a film that's both this expensive and this campy at the same time. 
I just have to give some props to a film for balancing that out. But like I said, just don't think it really fully captures that balance. Like I think it's going for that Richard Donner thing that you're suggesting, John, but I just don't think it really sticks to landing here. But that's not to say that I think it's quite as bad as some people are making it out to be. Like I didn't even mind the campy special effects. Like I thought they added to the film's charm with the exception of the cheetah scene. Like that was the only time where I felt like these special effects were like taking me out of the movie. They were so bad. Like the rest of it just had that kind of goofy, silly charm that added to the heightened absurdity of it. But um, as far as the movie itself, yeah, I just, I think it's a misfire, but not like a horrible, awful one, just a more interesting miscalculation that uh, does feel a little bit more personal. Cause it feels like a filmmaker kind of being overhead a little bit, as opposed to like a studio, you know, trying to do an algorithm and just coming out short. Like, I, I do think this is a filmmaker making a subpar superhero movie and I have to applaud that. But by the end, I did find myself uh, giving it a admirable, but uh, pretty firm C+. All right. Uh, Abby Olchesi, what about you? What is your final grade for this one? Um, I'm, I'm putting it in pretty solid C territory. Um, I was... I was let down by this. Um, and it may just be because I felt like I had such a strong connection to the first one, but yeah, it's given the precedent that was set. I'm, I was pretty bummed out by what we got. Um, there are some elements in it that I think are pretty fun, but, and maybe my, maybe my feelings about it will soften over time, but yeah, as of right now, I'm, I'm pretty unhappy about it. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm a high B minus. I definitely clicked with this one for the most part. I definitely want to see it again. And, yeah, I just, it is a weird situation where I just think the things I like about it really overshadow the things that I recognize as uh, not great. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I can't say enough that I, I really appreciated the swings and I appreciate sort of uh, how this felt very comic booky in a way that we don't usually get. And it wasn't kind of going for the same old thing. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad they did that. I'm excited that Patty Jenkins is going to be doing the sequel, which just got announced. Uh, or like confirmed, I should say. Uh, they also have a, a spinoff coming for the Amazons of Themyscira, which will be coming out. Uh, I think down the road. Uh, Patty Jenkins is not going to. Patty Jenkins is not going to be directing that one. That said, uh, but yeah, you can watch this right now on HBO Max for another like twenty five days or so uh, before. I think it's only thirty days after December twenty fifth. So it depends on when you listen to this. This uh, will no longer be on HBO Max. You will have to rent or maybe buy it on premium video on demand. So uh, if you want to check it out, this is your chance. Let's move on to our last film of the week, and that is Promising Young Woman. Now, Will and Abby both saw this. I was unable to check it out myself. Uh, I have missed a lot of chances. I was I tried to see this in January, but the Sundance thing, the Sundance uh, screening was totally packed, all of them. I couldn't see it, and I wasn't able to see this one ahead of time. It is playing in limited theatrical release. Uh, Focus Features put this one out. So it's possible some of you might be able to see this. Uh, I'm not sure if, it's a, if it has an international rollout. Uh, it's not playing at any drive-ins near me, so I'm out of this conversation. But Will and Abby, you both were able to see this new film. It is directed and written by Emerald Fennell. This is her first film. And Carrie Mulligan stars here, along with Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Clancy Brown, Jennifer Coolidge, Laverne Cox, Connie Britton, a pretty tremendous cast here. But Abby Olchesi, why don't you walk us through the setup and plot for Promising Young Woman? Sure. Uh, so Carrie Mulligan plays Cassie, who is a um, med school dropout. And she, by day, works as a uh, coffee barista and uh, lives with her parents. And by night, she uh, goes to 
different nightclubs around town and pretends to be drunk waiting for um waiting for a guy to uh kind of pick her up and attempt to take her home and somebody always does so uh a guy will pick her up and take her to like his apartment always uh rather than taking her to her own home uh and like attempts to kind of get in her pants basically because he thinks that she's too drunk to like really know what's going on at which point she reveals she is not drunk and calls them out for their horrible behavior and leaves um so this is kind of her her own personal form of revenge for a like really traumatic thing that happened to her best friend, which is the reason that she's no longer in med school. And we kind of learned the details of that over the course of the movie. Um, she eventually kind of reconnects with uh, a former classmate, Bo Burnham, who's always been kind of sweet on her and her reintroduction to him leads her to find out what's happened to some of her other classmates who were involved in this traumatic thing that happened to her best friend. And so this kind of general form of revenge on the male species gets super specific uh, and, and becomes revenge on the people who wronged her friend. Um, and at the same time, she is kind of entering it like a genuine relationship with uh, with Bo Burnham's character and uh, having to kind of confront the longstanding trust issues that uh, her experience has so far led her to have. So she's kind of at this uh, this turning point as to whether she's going to continue to kind of be like the queen of female revenge or if she's going to like try to try to soften her approach a little bit and try to kind of let this uh let this long-standing grief and anger go all right well ashton what did, what did you think of promising young woman did uh did it keep its promises um i don't know exactly what you mean by that but um yeah no i i did like this one a good but i got a screener for it about a week or two ago and um i don't think there's enough good things you can say about carrie mulligan as an actress i think she has proven herself time and time again and uh, i'm very happy to see that she's getting basically a studio film like this to really command and showcase her talents once more and um i think her star power and her talents can help um basically bridge the film from some of its uh i guess script problems or some of its structural issues but i think as a debut as a directorial debut i mean this is just such a like ferocious and uh bold film that i really admire the style of it and how much uh our director here is bringing to the forefront as an emerging filmmaker. And I know she's um, an actress and a screenwriter. I believe she wrote primarily for Killing Eve before this. But um, as a yeah. filmmaking debut, um, yeah, this is such an accomplished and uh, stylistic film from the onset. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just very inspiring. And, uh, and it just makes you feel so enthusiastic for what you're going to see a young and promising filmmaker, um, not to tie into the title, but um, yeah, just to see this uh, filmmaker come into her own and flourish from the early onset. And uh, that's what really makes me excited about this film. It's willing to be thorny and uh, confrontational and uh, doesn't pull with punches. And uh, well, I, I, I think the end of the film is where it's going to be the most divisive. And I'm very curious to hear where Abby stands on that uh, without getting spoilers. Um, I, I do think what works here is really it's it's such a bold and standalish film that I, I really appreciate the aspects of it that really work. And uh, by and large, I, this one really did it for me. 
Yeah, I'm I'm in a similar boat to you, Will. I I really love this movie. I think it's I you mentioned it's like really confrontational. It's very visually striking. Um I think all of that is true. Uh if you're a fan of Killing Eve, you can definitely see uh the influence of that in in this. They they feel very stylistically like they're coming from the same person, which I think makes a lot of sense. So we're we're getting basically the emergence of somebody with a really clear vision, which is always exciting, I think when it comes to filmmaking. Um and and it's a, it's a really refreshing perspective, and it's definitely like the the kind of thing that a lot of women have had to think about lately as well uh, thematically. And I think it really takes a it it feels as angry and tired as a lot of women are <laughs> about this this same subject, um, and I think treats it with a with a sense of of catharsis as well as a sense of tragedy. And I think both of those uh, both of those feelings are absolutely valid. Um, and especially I think when it comes to the ending, which does like take a really sharp turn and I actually really do like the ending. I know a lot of folks are not quite as sold on it. Um, but I think given the stakes that she's set up, given the events that have happened, like at that point, you know, that there is at some, the, we're, we're reaching the point of no return basically. And I think the way that, uh, Emerald Fennel chooses to, uh, address that approach, I think is true to the, um, the inner anguish that Cassie is feeling at that point. And I think really weaponizes the, uh, the people that she is trying to, um, kind of bring to, uh, the, the people that she's trying to get back at really, it, it shows you what awful people they truly are. So like something, a, a theme that is pretty rampant throughout the film is like the idea of second chances and the idea of giving, especially men who have committed, uh, sexual assault, second chances and whether or not like they deserve to be punished for something that happened when they were like young and different people. And I feel like the movie answers that pretty conclusively with no. And, uh, I think it's really fascinating in the way that it chooses to address that. Like, uh, I not, not to get into too spoilery territory, but, uh, Emerald Fennel essentially weaponizes all of the like nice young men, male actors in Hollywood in this movie. Um, I think she cast just about anybody under the age of like 45 who we see of who we see as like an affable male lead. So like Bo Burnham is in this, Adam Brody is in this. Um, and, uh, like Uh, Max Greenfield Greenfield, is in this, like, yeah, all of these people who we expect, like we, we consider them to be nice people because the, the roles that we've seen them in up to this point are generally speaking like nice, affable people. Like they are people who you would want to forgive if they did something like this, because they seem like such nice folks. And so the, the way that she chooses to use them, I think is really telling about like the expectations that we have for men versus the expectations we have for women and how those are so easily subverted. So, yeah, I think it's, it, there are some elements of it that may not work for everybody, but for me, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I guess for me, the ending of the film, and I'm going to try to tread lightly here because I don't want to get into spoilers or spoil anything. But um, I, I do think something like I've gone back and forth on it. And like as far as like when they make like a big decision in the film, and it's like something where I appreciate what it's doing. It's such an airtight script that I think uh, it's very, you know, deliberate and something that uh she was very thoughtful about but something about it uh like when i thought back in the film something about it just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth like something feels just like almost a little maybe a little too cruel to end the movie on that note but like you said it's such a pointed and direct and confrontational film uh especially in the era of me too where like we see a f- film like bombshell which is a lot more conflicted and it doesn't really i think achieve what it sets out to do just naming one example this film i think it's a lot more striking and a lot more willing to just nail something and just like really just 
pull not pull with punches and just you know land the hit and i think that aspect of it and those uh, elements of it just really stand out to me and uh just show a filmmaker who's willing to be very confident and established even from the early onset and i think for me that's what makes it a rewarding watch and i think that's what ultimately i appreciate about the film in retrospect as opposed to some of the things i still find myself i guess a little back and forth on but uh yeah i have to agree with you i think what the, we're seeing here from an early, you know, directorial debut is is just so promising and established. Uh, <laughs> Got to stop using that word, but um, I just think it's a a very confident and uh, uh, um, promising. Yeah, it's just that's I guess the word I'll land on for this. So I'm excited to see where she goes next. All right. So I have been trying not to listen too intently because I want my experience watching this film to be very preserved, um, but. That said, did you guys give your final grades yet? Is that is that where we're at? I think I think we're there. Um, I I did not give my final grade yet. I I gave this uh, I think a pretty solid A. It it's maybe not a totally perfect movie, but in terms of yeah, clarity of vision, um, uniqueness of perspective, and just basically totally uncompromising in doing what like exactly what it wants to do i think it's it's really really impressive and deserves i think it's it's something that i i hope gets emerald fennel a lot of attention because i think it deserves that attention and will ashton what say you yeah i'm i'm not far behind i'll give it a pretty firm b um i i still think i have some issues with it particularly with the end of the film that i still like i said kind of go back and forth on but what works here really does work, and uh, I, I don't think we've devoted enough time to talking about the very solid art and production design of the film, which is very kind of poppy and uh, uh, very kind of a, has like a bubblegummy flair to it that I think is really striking and fun. Um, I, I do kind of wish that, like, especially some of the earlier male characters that we meet in the film are maybe so like broadly written that I, I kind of feel like that took me out of the film a little bit to the point where I, I wasn't fully able to connect with the opening of the film, but. By and large, especially as we spend more time with Carrie Mulligan, I was really taken by this film and uh, really uh, appreciative of what we're, we're seeing here from this first time filmmaker. So I saw a B is where I stand on it. All right. Promising Young Woman is available right now in limited theatrical release. However, if you wait just a little bit longer, it's going to be hitting, I believe, video on demand and or streaming in the coming weeks. So you may want to keep your eye out. This one has definitely been getting a lot of attention and I'm very excited to see it. I appreciate Will, Abby, for I uh, appreciate both of you covering the film uh, and letting listeners know what the deal is with Carrie Mulligan's latest film. I'm a big Carrie Mulligan fan, so I'm I'm super excited to see how this one turns out. And that'll do it for our show this week. Let's finish with some plugs for things we've been up to before we close things out here. Abby, what what have you been up to? Uh, the holidays have been going on. I know it's been pretty busy, but is there anything we should be looking at? For sure. Um, I have a full review of Promising Young Woman up at The Pitch currently. I also have a full review of Soul up at uh, Crooked Marquee. Um, I also was able to contribute to uh, the Roger Ebert lineup of uh, favorite performances from 2020. So if you want to uh, see more uh, stuff about how, how much I love Carrie Coon in The Nest and watch the uh, the yes. great Abby Likes the Nest Now transformation of 2020. Um, that's You can go and check that out. Um, and also my uh, my latest column for Sojourners is also live, and you can find that at uh, sojo.net. I believe it's up uh, it's out from behind the paywall currently as a preview. All right. Lots to get to there. 
Uh, I have a review for Soul right now on The Young Folks, and we're going to be putting out our top films of the year on that site later this week. I got to write about Palm Springs uh, as one of my favorites of the year. I believe it's uh, in the top, I think top five, if not top 10 of The Young Folks Collective top films of the year. And uh, also, I had the awesome privilege to be on Sift Pop again, uh, the uh, podcast from Aaron Dicer and Andrew Ormsby. Uh, that was a lot of fun. We live streamed and we talked about Soul and Wonder Woman. So uh, we talked about even more stuff on there. So if you want to hear their takes on those, we had a really fun conversation. We also talked about uh, our favorite films set in the 80s, but not filmed in the 80s. Uh, I'll say, uh, Will, one of the films I picked was Mandy. So uh, music to your ears, I hope. Um, but All yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, a, that was an easy pick for sure. Uh, Will, what about you? Do you have anything you want to plug this week? Sure, yeah. Um, so we just finished recording about a week ago our season four finale of Annie Ogre Totes Ogre. Uh, we did over Zoom as opposed to me in person, obviously, due to COVID and the pandemic. Um, unfortunately, not as many people <laughs> uh, joined us as we would have hoped or liked, but we made do and it became a very intimate and uh, fun little uh, end of the year wrap up. Uh, and I would hope people check it out. Sounds good. Definitely do that. Uh, oh, and I forgot. Um, big Stream is still going strong. However, we moved the Big Stream to a different YouTube channel called John and Theory. So you can find it there and uh, still doing uh, regular streams throughout the week. And uh, although this week, I don't know. I don't know how, how many y'all have time for because we have extra milestones this week. So a lot to, lot to get to. Uh, but thank you as always for listening to the show. We'll see you all next week for our New Year's episode. From the Internet California, I am John Agroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Lash. From the Internet Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.